0: Welcome to the Asia Chessboard, the podcast that examines geopolitical dynamics in Asia and takes an inside look at the making of grand strategy. I'm Andrew Schwartz at the Center for Strategic and International Studies.
1: In this episode, Mike sits down with Eric Sayers, Adjunct Senior Fellow at the Center for a New American Security, and Zach Cooper, Research Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Eric and Zach are two of the rising ages strategic thinkers in the conservative camp. Building on the previous episodes on the Democrats' Asia strategy, the three discussed the nature of the U.S. strategic competition with China, growing isolationism among some Republican thinkers, and the roles of government, values, and principles for future Republican administration's Asia grand strategy. Welcome back to the Asia Chessboard. I'm Mike Green, and joining me this episode are two good friends, Eric Sayers, from the Center for New American Security, and Zach Cooper from the American Enterprise Institute. Last episode, we talked to Mira Rapp Hooper and Kelly Magsiman, who, when you ask around Washington, who's the rising stars on Asia strategy on the Democratic side, their name comes up again and again. When you ask about Republicans or conservatives, because they're not necessarily the same thing these days, who's shaping the debate, who to watch, who's gonna be in these key jobs, for decades to come, Eric and Zach's names come up all the time, so we're going to interrogate them a little bit today and find out what they think about the region, about U.S. policy, and about things that people who want to become Eric Sayers and Zach Cooper someday ought to be ought to be doing. But let's start a little bit with you guys. Eric, where'd you come from? Why are you doing this? The one thing you both have in common is you both spent time at CSIS, so that's obviously— the magic potion. That's right. To be successful in this business. But tell us about how you got into security in Asia yourself, Eric.
0: Thanks, Blank. And uh, good to be on with Zach, a good friend going back seven or eight years now. I really got into Asia in grad school. Uh, This was the height of the surge in 2006, 2007 in Iraq. My colleagues were all focused on the Middle East, but in class we were studying history, World War II, great power politics, the Cold War, and theories kind of related to that. I did a literature review focused on the U.S.-Japan alliance right when Prime Minister Abe did his first year in office back in 06, 07. And that really f- launched me into this line of thinking that this region kind of lined up with all these other issues and great power politics that I thought were interesting.
1: Where were you going to school?
0: I was at the University of Western Ontario. My parents are Canadian. You're Canadian. Uh, and, and my, my, my parents are Canadian. I okay. was born here in the United States. All right. Yes.
1: Our old strategic competitor, yeah, Canada. Canada. Exactly. (laughs) I first met you, uh, or had a long conversation with you when you were working with the um, CSIS. Pacific Forum and doing a project. Was that the first real Asia-focused work you did after school? That's
0: right. Uh, I had a few years in Washington working at the Conservative Heritage Foundation, working on defense policy. But I found if I really wanted to focus on Asia, I needed to get to the region, spend a few years there. So I did a year at the Roger Adams School of International Studies in Singapore. Mm -hmm. And then I had that opportunity to do the Sasakawa Fellowship with Pacific Forum
1: in Hawaii. Um, Something um, which is still an opportunity for undergraduates and graduates interested in Asian security, the Jim Kelly Fellowships at
2: at Pacific
1: civic forum and the one you did. How about you, Zach? You're, you're from the swamp like me, right? You're born in DC.
2: Yeah. Born, uh, right outside the CIA, uh, lived there for most Make of it my sound life like you were an up. experiment.
1: I, I, <laughs> yeah,
2: I don't know if the experiment has succeeded or failed. We'll find out, I guess. Uh, but yeah, grew up uh, in Washington, uh, always wanted to get away from Washington, but wanted to do policy work, and so got dragged back here. I mean, my path is a little different than Eric's, although I think we've ended up in pretty similar places right. now. I started out in government. I spent a couple of years in the Pentagon and in the White House right after school, and in that experience realized that uh, all the hard defense planning problems that I was looking at were in Asia. And, and you were
1: working for Juan Zarate at one point. Yeah, right? that's the right. Counterterrorism. So we were
2: doing uh, counterterrorism and a lot of sanctions. And that was an artifact of, of the time, right? I was hired on a post 9 11 billet, and that's what people needed. But uh, really, it was clear to me that the most important thing moving forward was going to be Asia, and that's where I wanted to spend most of my time.
1: And um, you did your PhD work at Princeton under uh, John Eikenberry and Aaron Friedberg and Tom Christensen. That's a pretty good Asia crew right there.
2: They were great Uh and uh, are important mentors to this day. And you also were part of this Stanford
1: cohort uh, over two or three years that includes seven or eight of the most prominent Asia thinkers in universities and think tanks right now, including Mira, who we had on last time, and uh, uh, Dan Kleiman at CNAS, Josie Gable's here at CSIS. There's like uh, seven or eight of you who all were there at the same time. Did you get together in a bar at Stanford and say, let's all work on Asia in 10, 20 years?
2: You know, it's funny. Most of us didn't know each other at all then. Actually, I think uh, Oriana Mastro started out my year. Sheena Greitens was my year. Hmm. Adam Liff, Hal Brands. I only knew Sheena out of that crowd. The rest of them have become friends since school, but I I think most of us didn't know each other.
1: It's really amazing. I mean, you're describing for people who've heard of them, some of the top thinkers on Korea, on Japan, on China, on strategy. Did you become a Republican slash conservative because that's where the job was after 9-11 or is there something... Uh, your dad's in the national security space as well, right?
2: That's right. I think you're right that it, it was an artifact and part of the fact that I got into government when there were Republicans in government. And I spent three years in government. And I, my big takeaway from that was that if I was going to stay in government, I wanted to have a mission. I wanted to know what I wanted to accomplish and not just be pushing paper. And so I felt like I had to go back to school. But it turned out that when I went back to school was the same exact time that all the Democrats were going in with the Obama administration. So I was in with the Bush people, out when uh, the Obama people were in. And so I just got to know the Republicans, I think, a lot better than the Democrats.
1: And Eric, did you go to Heritage because there was an opportunity to work on what you're interested in? Or Heritage, of course, is a conservative, think tank, uh, set it up by Ed Fulner back in the Reagan years. Right. Um, were you drawn to it because of the worldview or did the opening came up and you jumped it? I really
0: wanted to work on international relations policy and kind of a research assistant position, a way to start out in Washington. And it was really about the person I wanted to work with. And Mackenzie Eaglin, who's now at AEI but was then at Heritage Foundation. I worked with Mackenzie for two years on just defense policy. And it was a great way to get exposed to Washington and the Department of Defense and the Hill. Because Heritage kind of uniquely is one of the think tanks up on the Hill, a block from the Hart Senate Office Building. So When you're 23, 24, it really kind of makes the world in Washington, D.C. a lot smaller and a chance to engage. My politics, I guess, were always conservative. And so, you know, my my perspective on alliances and, you know, defense spending aligned with heritage. So it was a
1: great fit from the beginning and a great way to start a career in Washington. People who um, heard uh, the really interesting discussion with Mira and Kelly and are listening to now will probably be struck over the next few minutes how – little difference there actually is between conservative or Republican and progressive or Democratic thinkers on Asia. That was not the case when I was in grad school, but now there's an awful lot of overlap. But let's explore that a bit more. Why don't I start with you, Zach? But when you think of a Republican or conservative Asia strategy, and the Trump administration makes this an extremely hard question to answer, I'd say the president has one view, but a lot of people in his national security positions have a somewhat different view. You two, I would probably be pretty closely aligned with a lot of the senior people in the State Department or the Pentagon right now, but not always comfortable, in my case, quite outspoken about what the president says. So it's a little hard to answer, but what should or would a Republican or conservative Asia strategy be, Zach, either as you see it or as you would like to see it?
2: I think one of the core elements is that uh, conservatives tend to focus more on great power politics. I think that's just innately in how conservatives tend to see foreign policy. And so, you know, I think for a lot of conservatives, China is the dominant focus in the region. What's important, and I think Mira and Kelly got at this in a really important way, is that we can't lose sight of the rest of the region by just focusing on China. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where sometimes we've struggled. And I know you've talked a lot about this in the Bush administration. But, you know, one thing that I think the Obama team did a really nice job at was focusing on Southeast Asia. So I think one effort for Republicans going forward is to focus on that great power competition, but also think about what states in the region want and make sure that we're providing them the kind of support and leadership that they're looking for, because if everything's just about China, we're going to alienate a lot of our potential friends in the region.
1: This is, to steal the name of the show, a chessboard, and we need to be attentive to all the pieces, not just... Charging, hey, diddle, diddle right out the middle at the other side's king. Exactly. uh, Which is how we lose a competition.
0: Eric, how would you describe it? I really think there's two models. I wouldn't say it's Republican or Democrat. It's what do you prioritize most in the region? There's some who look at the US-China relationship and say, China's the most important. We should kind of run our policy through Beijing. That's been more in the Democrat Party in the past. There's others, and I think you and Rich Armitage, you, Mike, and Rich Armitage have talked about this in the past, and that's Japan is the most important Heart power in Asia and Japan and the US Japan alliance will help determine that future. And so I think that while well, China is important and has become kind of the dominant focus, it's not so much about how do we get China right, it's about how do we get the region right. And that's where the conversation has been shifting. And I would give the Obama administration credit too for the focus on Southeast Asia. I give this administration credit to for looking more at the Pacific Islands and the focus on, on the South Pacific, uh, like we've
1: also overlooked in, in the recent five and 10 years. You know, as the Chinese reach out and coerce and and, and bribe and influence, different sub-regions in Asia light up for different administrations. So I worked for Kurt in the Clinton administration, it was the US-Japan alliance lit up after the Taiwan crisis in 95, 96. Then in the Bush administration, it was India. Obama did Southeast Asia, and now it's Pacific Islands. There is a lot more continuity than not, mm-hmm. including on that question you just talked about about, does Asia strategy begin with our allies or with trying to work a condominium with China? And, and Mira and Kelly, we're clearly on the same side you guys are. Maybe that debate's over. But one thing I pushed them a little bit on, which is still a clear difference, I think, is defense spending and resources. But that may be changing. You know, I wanted to ask you about the Rand Paul wing of the Republican Party, the more isolationist wing. In a way, it's always been there. But I'll start with Eric. Does that worry you? Uh, is that a more isolationist, retrenchment view of U.S. strategy that could come to dominate the Republican Party? You worked on the Hill for a long time on the Senate Armed Services C- Committee and in the House. Does that trend bother you?
0: So I, I started in the House for Congressman Randy Forbes, who was a member who was very focused on China really before it was, was trendy to do that. We've come a long way, I guess is what I would say. Uh, there is the Rand Paul wing, or there's just Rand Paul, uh, he's very outspoken. He's focused on kind of the issues of the day. And that tends to focus more on the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Rand Paul doesn't have a lot to say about, about Asia in particular. Um, I think he's commented on North Korea in the past, but but he sort of stays away from that. And then we, that's really where we talk about this interventionist debate versus isolationist debate. It really rests on kind of the history of the last 20 years in the Middle East. That's not really the discussion we're having in Asia. I think the discussion is just... What is the nature of this competition with China and and how forward engaged should we be and what should we prioritize? And so, well, the military, and I'm happy to get to your question, the military, but well, the military and geopolitics are going to be a big part of the nature of this competition. I think there's a lot of other elements that Kelly and Mira raised that I think Zach and I would agree with that also are going to be. The center of gravity in this competition, and that's digital issues. This administration, I think, deserves a lot of credit the last two years for focusing on digital issues, especially Mm -hmm. 5G. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot of important speeches that have been given in the last few months on military-civil fusion and, and the technological and economic elements of this competition. And I think that's where, coming back to the Hill, we see the maturing understanding of what China is and what it could be coming to. And so on the defense spending side, you know, Republicans are going to be in favor of a higher top line. It's never going to be enough. I don't consider myself sort of a top line person. I think $750 billion and growth on top of that over the next five or 10 years should be enough. Mm -hmm. I have some concerns with the progressive kind of wing or as they describe themselves, progressive wing in foreign policy, which are saying we can do less, we can do more with more quality. But they don't really have a number and they don't really have a strategy to match to that number so it's a little wishy-washy right now i think it needs to be sort of fleshed out a little bit tom wright had a great piece in the atlantic a few weeks ago poking a bit of holes in this and where bernie sanders and elizabeth warren and the democrats are going on this again on the hill though we've seen an evolution in the last five years no one cared about china five years ago you couldn't get members to focus on that issue it was if you wanted to be on the sunday shows this week be smart on iran be smart on isis that's what's going to get you attention Now, members are kind of filing in front of each other to try to introduce the next piece of legislation related to China, Uh, and they've really expanded the discussion beyond just the security to focus on, I mean, Marco Rubio on capital markets and the investment side of this issue, Senator Cotton on 5G, Uh, Mike Gallagher has been a big leader on this, and this competition for ideas, I guess, up there is, is a good one. Now it's really, what do we do with that? Mm-hmm. What do we do with that new attention? And how do we focus it in a way that's most productive in the next couple of years?
1: So, Zach, did either of you go to the retreat in Colorado the Reagan Institute in July? I was invited, couldn't go, heard a bit about it. Were you there?
2: Uh, it was the week after my son was born. No so excuses, my excuses. wife made clear that <laughs> I had a choice to make and uh, I stayed at home.
1: Of course. Congratulations. I couldn't go, but I hear that what was supposed to be a, an offsite where Republicans and conservatives could think through even in the era of Trump, what a long term strategy for defense and foreign affairs would be kind of broke down in a bit of a food fight because some of the people they invited who were. To represent the Trump worldview, we're making arguments not about free trade or democracy or or for military presence, but about sovereignty and nationalism and the kinds of things you heard in the Trump uh, speech at the UN. Same question as Eric, but I'm going to push it back a little more. I mean, I find it a little bit worrisome that there's this divide and that the Koch brothers are funding a lot of retrenchment studies and so forth. But you want to reassure me or does it bother well, you? Well, I,
2: I think there are a couple of questions that Republicans are debating, and we really— have several different wings, maybe three different wings in the party. And we don't know which direction is going to win out. But I, I think one of the questions is, should we externalize our domestic strategy to foreign policy, the same way progressives right, are talking about externalizing a progressive foreign policy? So what's the equivalent of what Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are saying on foreign policy? I think it's this focus on sovereignty, right? Mm -hmm. This focus on sort of America doing for ourselves uh, whatever we need to do, ignoring what the rest of the world wants. I I think that's what you're hearing from conservatives. Now, I don't believe in that kind of thinking. I think it's going to be hard to win friends in Asia if you do that. But that's certainly a strong voice out there. I think the other two questions are maybe even more difficult. One is whether you believe that the era of US primacy in Asia is sustainable. I think the three of us might have different views on that. Mm -hmm. But that's certainly a huge debate that I'm seeing within conservative circles. And then the final one is whether we should be talking about values and principles at all, or just walk away from them entirely. I think some of this is a reaction to 2003 in Iraq. That is, the freedom agenda is still poisonous in some ways. But my sense is talking to conservatives, you get extremely different views on these three questions. And it's part of why sometimes I find myself agreeing more with Mira and Kelly Mm -hmm. than folks on the Republican side who I think have really different views about some of those three questions. Agreeing
1: with Mira and Kelly on the importance of democratic norms in foreign policy? Yeah, on on
2: the importance of values and democracy, on, for me, questioning whether the degree of primacy that the U.S. has enjoyed for much of the last uh, several decades is sustained. Sustainable, at least uh, yeah. in the way that we have pursued it. I think, you know, many conservatives come to very different positions on those questions, which lead them to totally different Asia strategies. So
1: younger scholars, younger Asia scholars, uh, and younger foreign service officers don't raise that question. They think values are fundamental to our position in Asia in a way that the generation of Asia scholars that taught me the more senior sort of China and Asia hands in the Foreign Service would have put differently that they would have said, we can't afford to worry about democratic norms in Asia. Um, Asians don't care about democracy. You know There are cultural differences. I find among younger Foreign Service officers and younger academics working on Asia, you, you don't hear that anymore. What about the primacy question? What, you did your dissertation on this in a way. Uh, maybe you can summarize it in 30 seconds, but where do you come out on the question of
2: Sustainability of US primacy and necessity of US primacy. I think those two questions are intertwined. Uh, My personal view is, if China continues along the direction it's heading, which is an if, we Mm. shouldn't assume that it will. But as a defense planner, I like to plan for the worst case possibility. If China continues to grow as it has, I think we're going to have to settle with less uh, of a capability edge than we've been used to. And it may force us to think about trying to operate differently than we have. And I think we're going to have to start encountering some questions about how we project power into East Asia, uh, what the cost of doing so uh, is, and whether it's sustainable in the long term. And my view is that there's some answers to those questions Mm -hmm. that are uncomfortable to a lot of folks, including folks in the military and the defense establishment, um, where we can keep our alliances, uh, stay present in the region— but be somewhat less vulnerable than I think we are today to the kinds of anti-access area denial capabilities that the Chinese have been pursuing. And your dissertation
1: looked back at cases of declining power and the military capability deployment presence choices they made, and you were generally – Pretty critical of all those choices.
2: Well, I think you see some countries that make some really difficult choices. So the Brits in 1904 and 1905 make some hard choices that they have to focus back on the threat from Germany. They pull back forces from much of the rest of the world. And they really have a strategic debate I haven't seen that debate really happen here yet, right? We have the National Defense Strategy, which calls for us to focus on Asia, and yet we're still very much stuck in the Middle East and elsewhere in the world. We have a National Defense Strategy Commission, which says that Do everything. It says do right. everything. <laughs> but you also, also says more. that, you know, the Chinese are catching up very fast and mm-hmm. we need to do much more. And and yet we don't really see a strong reaction yeah. to those debates. So I'm I'm waiting for those debates to emerge and for some real tough conversations about what military capabilities we need to pursue and whether we need to change some of what we've been pursuing the last few decades. The big difference, of course, the big difference between our
1: situation in the British and the time of Jackie Fisher and pulling the battleships back home to deal with the Germans is that we have security commitments. The British didn't have two major nation states that uphold the whole global order. So it's, it's, it's harder. But those alliances are also assets. And you've worked a lot on this in uh, the Pacific Command when it was still the Pacific Command and on the Hill and the Sask. Do you think we can sustain primacy? Can we do what we've been doing? How do we change? How do we use alliances in particular? Uh, how do we change how we think about capabilities, as Zach flagged? Without undermining alliances, which are so critical to uh, our interests in and stability, Mike, I think we've been
0: socialized since the end of the Cold War to think about American power in a unipolar way, in an unrivaled way. We throw words up like primacy. Mm-hmm. The lessons of the Cold War is we can win, we can defeat, you know, the other peer competitor. I think we're gonna have to relearn a lot of these lessons of the last twenty five years and think again in a context of. The 1960s and 70s and 80s, and I don't want to make Cold War analogies necessarily, but we're in a very different environment than Zach and I in our careers have been used to. The Hill still isn't quite ready for that conversation. We're still not ready to admit and say out loud, "Primacy is over." But we're certainly challenged in ways that mean that we can't sustain primacy without spending a trillion dollars a year, and that's just not going to be possible in the budget environment that we're in. The conversation really—it's starting to shift there, and that's why our system is great. a change in administration and another change in administration is going to bring about a continued shift towards where I think we need to be. I think in a historical context we're more in, you know, again it's a Cold War analogy, but we're more in 1948, 49 figuring out our way, trying to understand what this competition looks like, you know, where our allies want us to be, what the expectations are and where we're going to need to be. That doesn't necessarily mean that What Truman was going to carry on, what Truman did was going to carry on into the Eisenhower administration, the Kennedy administration, we saw very different approaches, but the logic stayed the same. The grammar shifted. And so I think that's where we are with the Trump administration and the next administration that follows that. We're headed in the right direction. The Hill certainly understands kind of where the arrow is focused and needs to focus. I'd point you this week to kind of dueling speeches that said the same thing. Senator Rubio and Senator Warner gave (laughs) speeches in Washington this week um, about China in, in great detail, and they said almost exactly the same thing. And that brings me to another point, and Zach had a couple great ones about some of the disagreements within the Republican Party. Uh, This one, I think, is about the role of federal government. Um, Republicans and Democrats see that differently. We see candidates for presidency in the Democratic Party talking about the role of federal government and taking on China by investing here at home and and investing in values, too, but maybe investing less in defense to pay for that. There's a disagreement within the Republican Party, too. I, I mean, we started by talking about how I worked at the Heritage Foundation, Heritage Foundation has a long kind of history of of talking about free markets and deregulation and lowering taxes. And that's a great approach in a world where economics and security are completely separate, where we have a security relationship in Asia and an economic relationship and they don't intertwine. We're now in an environment with the Chinese and things like we were talking about, their investment in digital, their investment in military civil fusion, kind of bringing down the walls between their companies and between the PLA, their military where there's a debate about taking a very different approach. And Senator Rubio and others have been saying that he put a judge just kind of called China an authoritarian capitalist state, where these are intertwined. We're going to have to find a way where the federal government does play a role in not industrial policy. I know that's a dirty word. It's a four-letter word. But playing a role in investing in, in the types of R&D that we need to be competitive in the economic and tech space and in the security space going forward. Which is a long way to say that I'm not sure conservatives and free market conservatives have enough to say right now that's constructive in this China competition. And we're going to have to think a little bit more about what the role of the federal government is going to be.
1: Yeah, we're in the phase of this new era of strategic competition where there's a consensus we need to push back because we've lost ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, on a lot of fronts. 5G is a really good example. Foreign interference is another example. South China Sea and artificial island buildings is another example. And there's a consensus we push back. Zach and Hal Brands wrote a great article for the Texas National Security Review saying, okay, but now we have to answer some pretty important questions. One of them is, what does victory look like? Another one uh, would be, mm. what's our sort of the canon First, Mr. X article, what are our assumptions about Chinese behavior? Is the Chinese foreign policy and defense strategy of Xi Jinping because of Xi Jinping? Is it because of the financial crisis? Is it is it because of structural factors? Um, let me start with you on that one, Zach. W- what are your assumptions about Chinese intentions? Are we shaping Chinese behavior? Are we doing what we have to do to hedge? Uh, or are we now in a competition where this only ends with the collapse of the Chinese Communist Party as as some people in this administration seem to think.
2: Well, I hope we're not in a competition where our goal is the collapse of the Chinese Communist Party because I think if that's what the administration wants, they should be doing some very different things. And I'm not sure that's the right approach in the first place. If you look at China and compare it to any traditional rising power, it's doing a lot of the things that rising powers do. Mm -hmm. I mean, look at the United States in the 1880s and 1890s we're not exactly some particularly peaceful society during a good portion of those years. People forget that you know, around the turn of the century, we start war with a European power in part to show that we can beat a European power in our region. It's not to say that China has been entirely restrained, but it's to say we shouldn't have been surprised at right. the kind of path that China is on. I think the the question for me is, as you said, number one, what do we want in the U.S.-China relationship, but also what's the center of gravity in the emerging competition? And where I come out on that is I think the center of gravity isn't in China. It's the alignment decisions of regional states. Mm-hmm. And so I think that should be the litmus test for everything we do in Asia. Is this going to create more alignment in the region with the United States and the interests and objectives that we have or n- or less. And I think on that barometer, if you look a lot uh, at a lot of the Trump administration's actions, they don't grade out particularly well. Mm-hmm. What in particular, TPP
1: withdrawing from the Absolutely. Trans-Pacific Partnership?
2: Yeah, TPP hurts. You know, the tariffs on China hurt. The tariffs on heard our In terms of
1: alignment with allies and partners, you mean?
2: Right, because if you look at Singapore, right, the Singaporean economy is doing fairly poorly. And the reason is in part because of our tariffs on China, which isn't to say that there isn't a logic for them, but it's to say the blowback is significant on some countries we care a lot about. Yeah, I mean,
1: Japan, for example, is probably more closely aligned with us on China strategy than anyone other than maybe Australia. They're not happy about these tariffs,
2: right? Yeah, and you know, putting tariffs on your allies—well, there's that too. In, in any world, yeah, would be it would be kind of a crazy but even idea. The China
1: tariffs are, are not popular in Tokyo, right. it's, it's messing with their development supply chains.
2: Yeah, and you've brought this up repeatedly as has Eric. You know, one problem is also that if we're looking at countries in the region and we want to find more friends and build up those relationships, we have to think about what those countries want. Mm -hmm. So for example, in the South China Sea, it doesn't really matter whether we're doing freedom of navigation operations if our friends in the region can't access their own exclusive economic zones.
1: So focus on alignment, focus on the chessboard. You're not making any assumptions about China's long-term intentions, it sounds like. And it sounds like you're assuming we can shape Chinese behavior with this, because that fundamentally is what alignment would mean, deterring and dissuading bad Chinese behavior and ultimately shaping Chinese choices. And in a way, that's what our strategy has been, even with flaws, for decades, isn't it?
2: I think that's right. And where Hal and I come out, and we have slightly different views, is is towards something that we've sort of labeled collective balancing. But the idea being that we should try and band together to change uh, Chinese decisions and shape their decisions, but recognize that that might not work, in which case we're going to have to come up with a harder edged approach. But I don't think it's time yet to completely give up on trying to at least deter China from some of the actions that we find most concerning. We haven't been pushing back.
1: We haven't tested
2: that maybe. Eric, what do you think?
0: I want to start by agreeing with Zach. I don't think that our objective should be the end of the Communist Party. And I mean, we don't need to go further down that, but there's, a, there's certainly a discussion there within the Republican Party itself. I think that also was agreeing with Zach, we need to find ways to create positions of strength with our allies, not just in a bilateral way, but in a, in a multilateral and trilateral way. And, and this administration and the Obama administration was starting to do that. How do we capitalize on that and how do we move it forward? At the end of the day, the Chinese aren't 50,000 feet tall and they aren't a foot tall. They're not as strong as we think or as weak as we think. I think we've kind of been a little bit afraid the last five or 10 years because we need them to in other areas of climate change and these types of issues. We've sort of stayed back from pressuring them. If there's anything I've learned in the last year, or year and a half, though, is that they do have strengths and weaknesses. They do have insecurities. The tariffs although not the best approach, have created leverage and have put them on their heels in a way that I didn't necessarily think was possible. What we do with that, how we capitalize on that is really the question at hand. Uh, If we just come away with a mini deal, uh, that was quite a bit of a damage to the world economy for, for such a small Takeaway, but beyond that, I mean, I think that the Chinese at the end of the day want to find ways to create leverage and coercion over others. You know, if we were at this table ten years ago, we'd be talking about their military and and their investment in anti ship ballistic missiles. And four or five years ago, it was probably more the gray zone and some of the great work you guys did here at CSIS on that space. Now it's turned to the, you know the digital issues and, and coercion that can come about as a result of those investments in five G. And so how do we align our strategy and create you know these new relationships with countries that could be under threat from Chinese coercion? Whether it's a larger power like Korea that wants to make its own decision on a defensive issue like the FAD deployment, Mm -hmm. or it's a smaller power like Singapore and its relationship with Taiwan that I think China would like a veto power over, we've got to find ways to empower those countries to not feel like they have to make a choice but feel like they don't have to choose China.
1: Last lightning round question. Zach, you took essentially, after some government service, the academic route and ended up being an important voice on this stuff. What's your one piece of advice for somebody now looking at a PhD who wants to be doing policy? Because the two are Hmm. harder to combine than used to be the case.
2: I think you have to go in knowing that you can't do both perfectly. So if you go in trying to— Unless you're
1: Mike Green or Zach Cooper, of course. (laughs) Uh, Well,
2: I'm not a university professor. I just adjunct. So I I think it's really hard to get a top-tier academic job and still do policy work Mm -hmm. early on in your career. And so I made a choice that it was more important to me to do the policy work and that I wanted to be in Washington and use my degree for that purpose. And I think it's hard because the academy tries to train that out of you. (laughs) But my experience was that actually the PhD has been remarkably useful and not just for connecting me with folks like you and getting to come to CSIS uh, as I was finishing my PhD, but... But also for actually learning something about the world that I think is useful in Washington, uh, and people shouldn't discount the value of that academic work.
1: Good, Eric, you got this Did not uh, do a PhD. important. Well,
2: you went up, <laughs> you came up.
1: I'd say largely the Hill gave you your yeah. your opportunity to really show what you got. And what would your advice be to somebody coming out of college or grad school looking at the Hill who wants to be doing what you and Zach are doing?
0: Yeah, I, after my master's work, I thought seriously about the PhD route as well. And there's there's an opportunity cost to anything. And I happened to just get a great opportunity to work for a member. member on the Hill who wasn't just focused on their district or their state, but on this broader series of questions and in a pretty senior role. So the Hill was a great place for somebody in their mid to late 20s to kind of get their chops and, and, and have that experience. The other thing I'd say is that this is kind of a career path where you're not just going to line up with one institution or one one sort of theme in this town and, and go in that direction. I change jobs every two years, three years at most. I haven't had a job longer than three and a half years, <laughs> actually. I, I did time on the Hill. I did time at think tanks. I did the, the degrees and the fellowships and all that accumulated by the time I was in my early 30s to a great set of experiences where I think I had a, a decent background in the theory and, and the history of this in this region, but also in how the practical and how to apply it and how things get done in the black box of government especially on the Hill.
1: So if this were Singapore, you two guys and Mira and Kelly would all be in government together, right? Because <laughs> the best and brightest would all be pulled by the prime minister and the People's Action Party. But it's not Singapore. I guess the consolation is, even with our crazy roulette wheel of politics, there are enough people like you and Mira and Kelly out there that we have a pretty decent chance of getting good people in government like we have now with people like Matt Pottinger and Randy Shriver and others. So keep on doing the good work and thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Mike. Yeah. Thanks, Mike.
0: Thanks for listening. For more on strategy and the Asia program's work, visit the CSIS website at csis.org and click on the Asia
2: program page.